We are going to continue this series uh, that we began last week, and I, I know we have several that are not able to be here this morning with not feeling well. I just want to let you know you will find on your bulletin there. Not only can you now access our messages as you've been able to on the website, but we also have a podcast up now. So uh, you can do that on your phone and stuff. If you have trouble accessing that, just let me know as we're getting it off uh, off the ground. We may have to jump through a few hoops, but that is now available uh, for those if, if you can't make it one week. I also wanted to share with you a statistic that is in the Pathway uh, paper that the Missouri Baptists put together, and I believe we have a copy out there by our coffee area. They shared a statistic that comes from George Barna. You may have heard of Barna's polls and stuff that he does of statistics in the church. I found this one very interesting. And in reading it, I, I think that it explains a lot about why we see the world, our nation, where it is today. This is a recent Barna poll. Only 6% of American adults hold to a Christian worldview. 6%. That's part of the reason why we're, we're doing the things like um, the Bible Institute and why we're walking through the particular studies that we are. When we don't know God's word and we don't have a firm worldview grounded in his word, it affects the way that we live. And this morning is we're going to dive into Matthew 11 and we're going to continue to see how we take our burdens to Jesus. I pray that the Lord will encourage us to continue to draw on him and his strength. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 11, if you would find verse 25 through 30 with me, and if you are willing and able, if you would stand, we'll read this in just a moment. Uh, to set the stage again, as we saw last week, John the Baptist is in prison and he's asking some questions about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is not coming as the conquering hero, the Messiah they were expecting, delivering them from Rome. And while he's in prison, he's asking some questions. And Jesus uses that as a springboard to then address the crowds and to talk about the gospel and to talk about turning to him and believing in him. And here in 25 through 30, we have the most famous section, especially 28 through 30. We're not going to dig into that so much, the latter half this morning, but we are really going to unpack 25 through 27. But let's set the stage once again of where we are opening up to 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to receive him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, Lord, as we continue this series about how you've called us to rest in you and you've called us to bring burdens to you and as we continue to walk through specific burdens that we may carry and how we can bring them to you, Father, I pray that you will speak by your spirit to each and every one of us. Taylor, make this message to where we individually are at. Father, for those even perhaps that will listen to this later on, Taylor, make it to where they're at. And Father, help us all to hear the message and the call of Jesus that we can come to him no matter what the burden 
or what the barrier that we feel that we carry that keeps us from being worthy or deserving to come to him. There's nothing that keeps us from being undeserving of being able to come and receive what he paid for with his own blood. So I pray, Father, now that you would speak as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat this morning. Uh, thank you for standing with us. Last week, we uh, unpacked the overall message of the entire chapter, how Jesus was calling people to come to him for salvation and not to simply do religion, as well as how he was calling his followers to a life of discipleship, to learn of me, to take his yoke upon them, to continue the process of not just coming once for salvation, but repeatedly coming with the burdens that come in life. And we applied that in one way last week primarily. We talked about how sometimes Satan is really good to attack us with feeling that we are responsible for the salvation of our family members. Now I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with having a burden and a desire for our family to come to know Christ. But the lie that if we simply know what to say or if we nag them enough that we can bring them to Jesus, that lie is from Satan. It's not from the Lord. And we are not called and designed to carry the burden of another's salvation. Jesus is. When we experience that burden, it should be an opportunity for us to run to the Lord in prayer, not an opportunity to try to seize that in our own strength. Or the guilt that we may carry from the fact of maybe we did not raise our kids in church. That's a burden that we can bring to the Lord. We can pray for our kids. We can pray for our lost family members. But that is not a burden that we are designed to carry. Jesus alone is designed to carry that. And this morning we're going to dig into a burden, a particular burden that is known as insecurity. And how this ties in with the fact of Jesus unpacking here that we are factually, in reality, chosen by God. We're going to unpack what this means this morning. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 11, find your way back to verse 25. And look with me again how Jesus begins setting up the famous verses that we probably all know, 28 through 30. In verse 25, Jesus answered and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. In your notes this morning, the sovereignty of God is rooted to the fatherhood of God for the believer. Notice that Jesus does not begin by saying, Lord, I thank you, the maker of heaven and earth, the all-powerful one. He doesn't begin with an attitude of terror before God's power. He begins with an understanding that God is his heavenly father who loves him. And did Jesus not teach us to take the same attitude of prayer in Matthew chapter 6? So we see that Jesus is defining here that God's sovereignty for the believer is rooted in viewing him as our father. We don't come to the Lord fundamentally as someone that we are a slave to, but as the one who is our father in heaven. And when we get that view wrong, even many believers battle with a lot of insecurity of how they relate to God and how they live out their faith if they view him fundamentally as a sovereign, as a king, and not fundamentally as a father. But once again, notice how Jesus says it. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Yes, our God is sovereign. He is king of the universe, but it is grounded in the fact that he is the father of those who believe. We don't run in terror from him as believers. We can come to him. We can trust him. If you would turn with me as well to Matthew 8 this morning, we're going to flip back and forth between these two chapters 
They're very similar and paralleling one another. Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning there, we're going to find verse 15. It puts very clearly what I'm saying here about how we've not been called to bondage to serving the Lord, but we have been called to sonship. We've been adopted with him as our heavenly father. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You see very clearly that scripture says we've not been called to be in bondage. But you see, Satan tries to bind many believers by many different things. And one of the primary ways he does that is through fear of keeping us insecure, of not resting in the fact that we don't have to do, do, do to be pleasing in God's sight. Jesus has already done everything. We're called to trust in him. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have responsibility for our actions. We certainly do. But our performance is not the basis of our confidence or our security. Our trust is in what Jesus has done for us. But Satan likes to try to bond us and bring us into a state where we are living as Christians oppressed by lies. You see, Satan has a mission. Satan is not out, and the world, the flesh, and the devil are threefold enemy, the triumvirate of an enemy. They are not out to simply annoy us or to get us down or to bug us. Scripture says they are out to take us out. Their mission is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan wants to take our lives out. He wants to bring us into bondage. Satan knows that he cannot take away a believer's salvation, so he does the next best thing that he can do. He seeks to get a foothold in our life where he can take away our joy and our peace and our contentment and our confidence. He does that through bondage of fear and getting us to think improperly and skewing our thinking in regard to who God is. So the first way we see Jesus talk about this in Matthew 11, if you flip back there, is that the sovereignty of God is rooted in the fact that he is our father. Are we approaching God? as our father, or are we terrified? There's over 40% of households today where there is no father in the home. In my generation alone, the millennial generation, I had a lot of friends growing up who did not have dads or had absent dads in their homes. And I can tell you, it affected the way that they grew up and it affected the way that they viewed God and the way they viewed the fatherhood of God. We live in a society where the family we know has been unraveling for a long time. And the reason why Satan attacks that so much, the reason why Satan attacks evolution, getting us to believe that life is an accident and we have no purpose, is so that then he can gain an upper hand in destroying lives. That's what he's all about. Either destroying life literally from the very moment it begins or destroying life in bondage to fear and believing lies as we're living living a life that is far from the abundant life that Jesus has called us to and promised. Satan's mission is to destroy us, and Satan knows us probably much better than we know ourselves. He and his demons have been studying us on how to attack us and how to trip us up. And so when we come before the Lord and we trust in him, are we coming to him as a father, or are we coming to him as a king, as a sovereign? Which way are we viewing him? Hopefully this will become clearer as we go on this morning. Secondly, this morning in your notes, revelation, which is the biblical term for spiritual understanding, is given to the childlike 
exclusively. Intelligence is not the problem and it's not the solution. Just knowing more is not the solution about dealing with, for example, the burden of insecurity. Look in Matthew 11 again with me. Let's continue on in verse 25 and get into 26. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. Notice that the intelligent aren't getting it. Intelligence is not the answer to insecurity. Now, that may be the way that the world tries to deal with this. Just learn more about yourself. Just find a way to medicate your feelings or your fears. That's typically how modern psychology approaches things. But the Bible says that the Lord has hidden truths from the prudent and the wise of this world. Human intelligence isn't the answer, and it's not really the problem. It goes much deeper. It goes on to say in verse 25, And have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Spiritual understanding and gaining an understanding of what the root is and the lies that Satan has been whispering in your ear that you've come to believe over the years, binding you to some type of lifestyle of performance, of people-pleasing, or trying to live in a way that would somehow be worthy or would give you uh, the right to then have value in others' lives. Living that way is rooted in not understanding that we are children of God, that we can rest in him for who he is and for what he has done for us. And it is the childlike exclusively, Jesus says, that will have this revealed. The Lord brings spiritual understanding when we are to the place of throwing aside all of our other props, all of our other excuses, and simply coming to him. You know, insecurity is not a new thing in Scripture. We see it happen in many believers' lives. For example, I think it's safe to say we see it in John the Baptist earlier on in this chapter. He begins to ask Jesus back in verse 2 and 3, Are you the coming one or should we look for another? You're not kind of matching my view of what you're supposed to be doing, Jesus, so how do I understand this? He's having questions and he's having doubts and he's kind of insecure about his view of Jesus in this moment. We see over on in other places in Scripture that Moses, for example, was very insecure. Moses early on in his life seemed to be much more proud. He tried to free the Israelites by his own strength. He murdered another man that was abusing an Israelite. And he thought that they would rally behind him and follow him to victory. Well, they rejected him. Pharaoh came after him. Moses has to run to the backside of the desert. And for 40 years, he's just taking care of some sheep. He had been educated. He had been prepared in Pharaoh's courts. He may have even been, we don't know for certain, but as a prince of Egypt, he probably was trained militarily. He was prepared for a life to be a leader, and yet all of that was rejection by his own people, rejection by what he believed his life calling was. And he finds himself having to go to the backside of the desert for another 40 years, tending sheep, And then he has his burning bush experience, and he makes all of his excuses, does he not? Moses is super insecure, and how does the Lord answer that? The Lord is patient with him, and the Lord continues to remind him of his power in his life. And then at the end, because Moses is being thick-headed, he kind of has to apply a little bit of pressure and say, no, you get going. We see this with Jeremiah, which will unpack more the particular way that his insecurity manifested. The prophet who was afraid of the people who were watching him and looking at him as he preached. 
Jeremiah the prophet who did not like the burden of the fact that people were not responding and wanted to throw in the towel on what God called him to do. We'll unpack more of that on Sunday nights in our Old Testament survey in the future. We see Jeremiah. We see Gideon. Clearly he dealt with insecurity, and yet the Lord used him mightily. We also see Martha. Martha, overburdened and trying to find her worth in all that she could do, missed the blessing of sitting at Jesus' feet. This is not a new problem. This is not a new thing that people just deal with today. We find it rooted in the Scriptures. But we find that Jesus is very kind toward those who come to Him as children. When Elijah was burned out, Elijah, who was a prophet, that for over three years experienced the daily supernatural provision of God. He prayed and there was drought and there was famine in the land. He called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice and it was completely consumed before the people. Tons of the Israelites who had been living in idolatry and far from God acknowledged that the Lord was the one true God and bowed down on their faces in repentance. Hundreds of false prophets were eliminated And great victory was on the horizon. And then the drought was going to break. Elijah had called down fire from heaven. He had all of these things happen day after day and victory after victory. And he runs in the power of the Spirit of God, outrunning the storm and outrunning the chariot of the king. And then Jezebel, the queen, sends a message to him and says, I'm going to kill you. For all that you have done, you've destroyed my false teachers, my false prophets. I'm going to come after you. And we see him break down and burn out and run into the wilderness. How does the Lord minister to him? The Lord comes to to Elijah and he doesn't beat him up. Rather, he cares for him. He gives him a snack. He gives him rest. He sends an angel to help sustain him. And he reminds him, I'm not finished with you. We see that believers struggled with this throughout the Bible. But when they came to the Lord in a childlike way, the Lord helped them to carry that burden and to bear it. They were called to now live a a life yoked to Jesus, not yoked to themselves. Thirdly, this morning, if you jump down to verse 27 of Matthew 11, Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now that may kind of be a tongue twister right there. What is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, thirdly this morning, we see that Jesus clearly says there is an exclusivity to a relationship with the Father. Only Jesus, if we're being honest, have the right to be called God's son. Isn't that true? He's the only one to have the right. He was the only perfect one. He was the eternally begotten son of God. We are the creation of God, but we do not share that rightful place. And yet Jesus made a way. He made the only way. Only Jesus knows the Father. Only the Son can reveal the Father to us. Jesus is the only way to come to our triune God. And Jesus, being the only way, invites us, and this is mind-boggling, into the same relationship that He has with the Father. He calls us to be children of God, to be sons and daughters of God. If you would turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 8 again. 
Let's find verses 29 through 30. 29 through 30 over there in Romans chapter 8. And notice how the predestination of God and His foreknowledge and His sovereignty, it all works together with our choice. Exactly how this works together is a mystery. But it all works together to call us to be sons and daughters of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, He also called. And whom He called, He also justified. And whom He justified, He also glorified. In other words, to simplify those verses for us, the Lord knows from the start to the finish, from the moment before we ever even understood what He did for us, to the moment that we first understand, to that time then when we are growing in our walk with Him, till the very time He takes us home to be with Him in glory for all of eternity, He is superintending this process of calling us to Him. And it's an exclusive relationship. In other words, we are adopted as children of God. That is an exclusive relationship. To be adopted is to be chosen, and to be adopted into a new family means that you are no longer somebody else's kid. You have been chosen. Secondly, there on your notes under that point, to try to clear up some very complex theological things that come up with this topic, how exactly God's divine sovereignty and our human responsibility, our human responsibility to choose, God's responsibility to be the one to draw us to the gospel, exactly how those work together is a mystery. And even Scripture says this. But Scripture also clearly affirms that both of these things are true. Our God is divinely sovereign. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves who are dead alive. Only the power of the Spirit of God can do that. But by the same token, each one of us is personally responsible for whether we choose to accept or reject the free offer of Jesus Christ. And they are both truths, like two sides of the same coin. Just as we've talked many times over the last year about how the Great Commission is both evangelism and discipleship. It's not just evangelism. It's not just discipleship. They're two sides of the same coin. So there is something very similar here in how the mystery of the gospel works, in God preparing every detail and yet marvelously and wondrously calling us to also choose Him. He has chosen us, but He's also called us to choose Him. Maybe an illustration to help us understand this. We've already looked at the illustration of adoption, but the illustration of marriage. Many times in Scripture, the Lord uses marriage to help us understand our relationship to Him. And when two people marry, they each choose each other, and they vow, for better or worse, richer or poor, it's a commitment not based on an idea or an ideal situation or perfection, but a commitment to a person. And the Lord calls us in salvation to enter into that type of a covenant. And He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Fourthly this morning, back in Matthew chapter 11, we come to the famous verses 28 through 30. And we see that Jesus issues the call. While he's talked before how there is an exclusivity, you're either a child of God or not. You are either his beloved or not. There is an exclusiveness to that relationship. In order to trust Christ as Savior, we must choose to forsake all others. 
But at the same time, Jesus not only points to the fact that this is a special relationship with him, it's exclusive, there can't be other competing forces getting in the middle there. But at the same time, in Matthew 28, he issues the universal call to all of us to come to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now there's a lot in those verses that we will not get to this morning for sake of time. But I do want to emphasize fourthly this morning, while our triune God is sovereign and a relationship with Him is exclusive, We either surrender our life to Christ or we don't. He still invites us to choose what we yoke ourselves to. He invites us to choose what we yoke ourselves to. Jesus is clearly setting in contrast a burdened life of slavery and oppression under a heavy yoke and a burden that is so, so heavy in contrast to living yoked to Him in freedom as sons. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, I want you to see how Paul himself describes believers who started off very well. They were believing the gospel. They were coming to Christ and believing by faith alone. And then there were lies of the enemy that began to come in, and they find themselves battling with going back to a yoke of oppression. This was Satan seeking to bring them back into bondage. And the statement here is not saying that they somehow lost their salvation or didn't become believers, but saying that they were living a burdened life rather than a yoked life. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Notice the language here. It's warfare language. Stand fast. It's the idea of hold your ground, dig your cleats in, get in a stance to where you cannot be pushed over. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Churches all across Galatia, Galatia was not a city, it was an entire region. It was like a county, is what we would call it today. Churches all across this region began well, they were believing the gospel, and then so many believers were being ensnared by Satan that brought in some additional things that they needed to do in order to be right with God. And many of them were taking on a heavy burden and going back to be entangled in a yoke of bondage rather than resting in Christ's freedom. Because He has made the way, He has paid the price. This morning, if you would turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 3, that's not in your notes. But we are going to kind of trace how this happens in the very beginning of Scripture. We're going to trace how Satan seeks to pervert and to twist something that God meant for good and to use it for evil. And so here in Genesis 3, we're going to have the account of the fall of Adam and Eve. I think many of us are probably somewhat familiar with this. They disobey, they eat the fruit. But I want us to notice some particular lies in which both Adam and Eve are afflicted. So there in chapter 3, the passage begins talking about the serpent, the snake, uh, the devil coming and bugging them. And in verse 1, the second part of verse 1, the serpent says to the woman, Has God indeed said, 
you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He begins to sow a seed of doubt. He begins to sow just a little bit of questioning in her heart to begin to ask, what did God really say? What does he really mean? And then Satan progresses in his temptation as they continue to talk. And he tells her in verse 4 that you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the way in which we see Adam and Eve respond here is the way that Satan plays this out so many times in people's lives today. Eve is ensnared by the lie that God must be holding something out on her. There's, there's something that I'm missing out on, not being able to know good and evil the way God does. She's ensnared by that desire. She wants, in a sense, the safety of being like God. She wants what she's missing out on. And the way the text reads as you go on here... Adam, it says in the latter part of verse 6, she also gave after she eats it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam apparently is standing passively alongside this entire time. He doesn't stand up to the serpent. He doesn't get in the middle. He doesn't correct the twisting of God's word back in verse 3 when Eve says that we're not even supposed to touch it lest we die. That's not what God had said. She was adding some things. We never see Adam step up and lead. And so what do we see? We see Eve deceived by Satan's temptation, and she takes the bait. And then Adam, knowing full well what he's doing, and Scripture says this over in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and, and uh, 1 Timothy 2 and on and on, Romans as well, that Adam knew full well and willingly did what he was doing. He chose to eat the fruit. He wasn't deceived. But Eve is deceived. I want you to notice two things going on here. Eve is basically being tempted by Satan through a form of insecurity, that I'm missing out on something that God knows and I don't have. But Adam is on the other side of insecurity. The opposite of insecurity is pride. Insecurity is deception. Insecurity is sin, but it's also suffering. Pride, however, is arrogant and just doesn't care about the consequences. And that is how Satan attacks Adam. He just passively goes along with it. He knows full well what he's doing. He doesn't care about the consequences. And he just arrogantly goes along, knowing what it will cost him, knowing what God has said. Now, I want us to see something else. And the reason why I'm unpacking it that way is because if you flip perhaps over the page and you find verse 16 and you're going to find, uh, let's see, 17 through 18 as well. When we see the curses, I mentioned earlier today that Satan... And the forces of the enemy, his demons that serve alongside him, they know us many times better than we know ourselves, and they attack us the same way. And I want you to see how reflected in the very curses that woman and man would receive was linked to the particular ways in which they both sinned, and in particular ways in which Satan would continue to attack them. So look in verse 16. We probably know the first part, that, that childbirth would be more painful for ladies, but do you know the second part of it? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now that rule there is not talking about men being able to abuse and use women. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that Adam was meant from the very beginning to be the head of the home. He was called to protect his wife. Men, we have been called to protect and provide. We're, we're wired that way. That's how God's created us. And the very way in which Satan tends to tempt us as men, with insecurity specifically 
is in the area of work. If you jump down to Satan's sins, I want you to see this. So Eve would be tempted. She would, she would resent the fact that Adam was to be the leader at times. There would be this conflict at times between the two of them when he passively abdicated his God-given role. However, Adam was going to experience toil and heartache in what he was created to do. He was designed by God to protect and provide, to tend the garden and to rule over all of creation. And notice what happens in verse 17, the last part of that. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Now I want you to notice something very clear here. Because this passage has been taken out of context far too many times in the United States. Work is not the curse. The toil of work. And particularly for men, the temptation for us to wrap our identity and our worth in what we get out of our toil is what the curse is of sin. Thorns and thistles it will bring for you. And you shall eat of the herb of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to the dust you shall return. We see that Satan preys on the very design that God created both Adam and Eve for. Adam was designed a certain way. He was given responsibility. He was called to provide and protect. Eve was created to be his complement and, and to be what he could not be. She would be more uh, connection, more relational, everything that he was not. And together, they were meant to be a reflection in unity of what God's true character is. They both were created in the image of God. Woman reflecting certain aspects and man reflecting other aspects. But they would find themselves in competition to live opposite of their creation. This is how Satan would attempt to bring them into bondage. He would encourage Adam, encourage men to be passive and to be overly focused on the toil of their work. It was part of the consequence they would bear of their sin. Eve, when she did not feel the safety of being under Adam's protection because he was being passive, she would then respond with resenting the fact that he was given the responsibility to be over her. Now, I want to apply this in what we see happening in our nation today. We see the horrible things with the Disrespect for Marriage Act. We see laws being passed for children to be able to mutilate their bodies without their parents' consent. How have we gotten to that point? Because about 60 years ago, there began, around that time, a movement, both within the church and within the culture, encouraging men to try to be women and for women to try to be men. And for 60 years, we've had the feminist movement and we've had the attack on men, men embracing a form of being meek and mild far too often, and far too many women believing the lie that competition is what we're created for. That anything a man can do, she can do better, that's, that's not what God has called us to be, not to be in competition with one another. You see, since people embrace that lie, women trying to be men, the feminist movement is about women trying to be masculine, and the response to that movement is men trying to be feminine. We've been living this out for 60 years, and now what we're bearing fruit with is actually a couple generations later, people not just believing those lies, but now saying, I want my pronouns to change, and I want literally and permanently to change myself to match the lies that I believe. 
Are you seeing how Satan gets in with a little bit of insecurity and then he continues to build on it to bind us in bondage to lies? We see this all around us in the culture we live in. But I want to remind you of something that if you're reading the chronological Bible reading plan as a church, you probably read this very recently. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis? Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. He ends up serving Potiphar. And he ends up being falsely accused, thrown in prison. His life doesn't look like it's that good. But everywhere Joseph is, God gives him success. And he chooses to serve the Lord rather than to pine away in self-pity about what he's going through. He chooses to just keep serving the Lord wherever he is. And literally overnight, he goes from being in prison, in the dungeon, to then being the prime minister of the most powerful nation in the world. And then Joseph has the opportunity to reconnect with his brothers and to bring them down and provide for them in the midst of famine. And he foreshadows Jesus going before us to provide for us in the way that he lived that. But after Joseph's dad died, after Jacob died, Joseph's brothers were terrified. And they came back to him and they said, Hey, by the way, Joseph, before dad died, he, he said something on his deathbed. He, he said that you have to treat us good and, and to not hold against us the fact that we you know, sold you into slavery, that whole thing. They're insecure and they're very afraid. And Joseph looks with them, and we, we can't exactly read tone in Scripture, but his response seems to say something of just a, a, a gentleness of, why aren't you getting this? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. If you turn with me to Romans 8 again. Romans 8, 28. Something in your life, maybe there's insecurity in your life this morning because of something traumatic or something that has happened to you. Maybe sin that was done to you. Maybe it is simply something you have chosen to believe. Lies that Satan has whispered in your ear. Either way, as believers, we have the hope of Romans 8, 28. Our past or our struggle or our burden never defines us as believers. Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. That verse does not say that everything was good, but that God can work it together for good. Just as Joseph endured all of that struggle for years of his life, he recognized, even in the Old Testament, he came to understand what people had meant for evil against him, God was using to prepare him for the good of many, many lives were saved, not only his family from that famine, but many lives all across Egypt. And it never would have happened if he had not been sold into slavery by resentful brothers. Whatever your greatest pain or struggle is, it can become your greatest testimony. And it's an opportunity to come to Jesus with that, not to run away from him. Fifthly this morning, the application for us we're going to see this in Romans 8 again as well, is that the Father loves you. Your identity is in who you are in Christ, not in what you accomplish. Again, are you living in sonship or are you living in slavery? Satan is really good at binding believers in either slavery to bitterness over something that's happened in the past or insecurity over something they, they perceive themselves as not having a clear identity grounded in Christ. Our identity is who we are in Christ, not what we accomplish. It's not our performance. It's not our ability. It's not what we do. It's what He has done.
And there's some particular ways in which I want to just outline this a little bit. If you carry that burden of insecurity this morning, yes, it is a self-focus. It is sin, but it's also a suffering. It is a burden of slavery to oppressive lies of the enemy, specifically about your identity, your worth, your value. You do, do, do wearingly so. We see that in examples in Scripture of those that burned out or those who were struggling with their identity or excuses of why they could not obey God because of how insecure they were. That burden of insecurity is introspection, 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 almost compulsively. It's knowing very little of the joy, peace, contentment, fulfillment, and satisfaction that Jesus promised. So what's the solution? The solution is the gospel. And if you turn to Romans chapter 12 this morning, I don't want to go too deep here because we will be here in the future. But I want to show you that there is a process to laying this particular burden down. It is one that you bring to Jesus again and again. And again, don't simply look for a fix or something to somehow medicate how you feel. Come to Jesus with that burden. And notice that you're called to a different yoke, a different way of life. Your value is not in how you perform perfectly or imperfectly, but in Christ who has done the finished work. You don't have to work for rest, somehow deserving God's rest. You can live from the rest that Jesus accomplished on your behalf. Romans chapter 12, 1 through 3. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Our God is merciful, and because he is, we can present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not a consumed sacrifice that's burnt up and dead, but a sustainable living sacrifice that keeps on day by day serving the Lord. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is a reasonable yoke, and we're going to get into that in weeks ahead. When Jesus says he has an easy yoke, he's not saying a carefree life. In Greek, he's saying something else. It is a reasonable, manageable, and doable service. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. That's what Satan does. He encourages us to believe lies and be conformed to this world's mold and all of its systems and ways of doing things. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you battle the burden of insecurity, you will have to come to Jesus and you'll have to take his yoke upon you and learn of him. And specifically, you're going to have to reprogram your mind, renew your mind to believe the truth of God's word. What does God say about you? And what does God say about your identity and your worth that is opposite to how Satan has brought up things in your heart and your mind? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove, or your translation may say you can discern, what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. We come to Jesus, we learn of him, we rest in his truth, and it's his truth that will set us free. But it's not always a one-time, instantaneous, coming and miraculous healing. It can be. But for many of us, we come to Jesus again and again. Like the characters in the Bible who were clearly mightily used prophets and, and very um, effective people for the sake of God's kingdom, they dealt with these things as well. But rather than viewing it as something that pushed them away from God, they viewed their burden of insecurity as an opportunity to run to the Lord. So this morning, are you weary, exhausted, 
spent or heavy laden by something. It may not be this burden. It may be another one. But will you bring that to him this morning? You don't have to do to be loved by the Lord or valued or to be, have worth from him. Jesus has done all. He's provided all. And back in Genesis chapter 3, you remember there where Adam needs sin and then they have the particular curses, the, the consequences that are doled out. Also in chapter 3 and verse 21, God makes them clothing of skins. Now it's something we may miss at first glance, but in order for them to be clothed with skins, they had to be clothed because now they realized they weren't innocent and they were ashamed and God had to cover them. There's a spiritual purpose behind the literal change that happened there as well. But the fact that they were clothed with skins meant that they had to see the death of animals. Blood had to be shed in order for their sin to be forgiven. They had that picture from the very beginning. Jesus has shed his blood for us. And the Bible says in the New Testament, he has clothed us with his righteousness. You see, our security, just as Adam and Eve's covering their atonement was made by God who covered them with literal skins. Our atonement for the burdens we carry comes from Christ alone and from His blood, His righteousness, not our own. In Romans chapter 8 this morning, the last verse there in your notes, chapter 8, verse 31 through 39, the end of the passage Notice how this speaks. Romans 8 deals all with the adoption and our security in Christ and the value we have in our Father's eyes. It says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There's the being clothed in Christ's righteousness part. It is God who justifies. And who is he who condemns? Condemnation never comes from the Father, never comes from the Trinity. Condemnation always comes from Satan. Conviction comes from the Spirit of God. But conviction comes with hope. Condemnation leads to despair and hopelessness. It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus is praying for you. Whatever burden you carry this morning, Jesus already knows it and he's already praying for you and interceding for you to his Father on your behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Our circumstances and our experiences do not define us because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning, if you would bow your head, uh, if you would this morning, and if we would just take a moment where we are at. A moment to be still before the Lord. As we reflect on Jesus' words. That if we're weary and we're heavy laden, whatever that burden may be, to bring it to Him. Jesus says, come.
And you can do that where you are this morning. You can kneel where you are or you can come to the front. You can pray with someone else. Follow the Lord's direction in that. But whatever your posture, just respond as the Lord leads you to come to him this morning. But let me guide us in prayer. And then we will stand and worship together. Father, today we reflect upon, as we continue to dig in the words of Jesus, we reflect upon our soul. Father, we can be a Christian, and yet we can still be choosing to live a burdened life. Satan wants us to live that way. The world, our own self, and the devil all seek to bring us into bondage. Father, your word says we are in a spiritual war. This isn't a skirmish. This isn't just a little bit of annoyance or something. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he throws lies and deceit. And our own flesh we are constantly at war with, and this world constantly is in opposition to everything that you value and your truth, Lord. So I pray that you would help us to strap our boots on and to recognize that we are in a spiritual war. And the way to confront those burdens is to come to you in military style. To take on a new yoke. Not the oppressive yoke of the enemy. The values of this world. Even what we think our own heart says about ourselves. But Father, to come to you and to yoke ourselves to Jesus. His way, his pace, his way of doing life. Father, we lay those things at your feet this morning and we thank you that you don't tell us to go clean ourselves up and then come to you, but to come with whatever our burden is, whatever is wearing us and weighing us down, and to just come to you just like that. And that you love us even as broken as we may be. Father, help us in the future as we continue to reach out to our community with the gospel. Because, Father, this world is clearly depressed and broken, and you have called the church to be the place for those hurting and broken to come. Lord, we're not called to be a place for the healthy. We're called to be a hospital for those in need of you. Father, prepare us for that when you do that. Father, help us to remember and to embrace the mentality that Joseph had that what others meant for evil and and, and horrible things that perhaps we went through, maybe burdens that we carry or something we don't forgive ourselves for that may have been long ago, like that story of a woman with an abortion 41 years in her past. Father, we can bring that burden to you. And our greatest struggle and our greatest pain and our greatest torment in your hands can become our greatest testimony for you. Father, this morning we thank you for the reality that you love us. You are our Father. Our worth, our value, our affirmation, our approval doesn't come from others and doesn't come from anything in this world and cannot be earned by doing more or working harder. Father, it can only come from you alone. Lord Jesus, you promised us abundant life. And I pray that you would help us to walk in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Scott and Tom make their way up, if you would stand this morning, let's praise the Lord together.